Welcome to Pity Party, a podcast to end BSL. I'm your host, Sydney, and I'm so excited to dive into our episode today as we move one step closer to removing breed discriminatory legislation from Ontario, and really, anywhere that it still exists. In continuing our conversation about responsible ownership from our last episode, I want to start today by clarifying that this is not meant to be a training podcast. There are already so many more qualified and experienced people with podcasts that give great advice on all types of training. And while the guests I have on today's episode are both brilliant trainers with some great advice, I want to encourage listeners to treat your training journey with your dog as just that, a journey. When you get a dog, you're making a 10 plus year commitment to that animal. And it's naive to think that six months in, you'll have everything figured out. Even some of the most diligent owners I know admit to have made mistakes in the way they started working with their dogs. So whether you've had your dog for a month, a year, or 10 years, I encourage you to think critically about how your dog's behavior affects those around you and if there might still be some work to be done. I mentioned in episode three that a lot of bully breed owners I've spoken to get frustrated about other dog owners ignoring leash laws. I'm sure you've all seen a meme or two by now about the owner who's frantically shouting, don't worry, he's friendly, as their out of control dog charges up to someone else. Now, imagine how that scenario plays differently when the out of control dog is a bully breed. The reality is in Ontario, Having your bully breed off leash in an area where they shouldn't be could result in your dog being taken away, regardless of whether they cause any real trouble. In fact, a lot of stories of seized pit bulls occur simply because the dog has made the mistake of venturing off the owner's property. Good Samaritans then find the dog and call animal control because that's what you do when you want to help reunite a lost dog with their owner, right? Well, unfortunately, these Good Samaritans often have no idea about BSL or aren't even aware of the breed of the dog that they found until it's too late. We're gonna share some more stories about these sorts of situations in a later episode, but the important thing here is that bully breed owners who are aware of BSL are often hyper-vigilant about obeying laws for exactly this reason. For today's episode, I spoke with two bully owners I admire. One lives on Ontario and one lives in the Pacific Northwestern United States. They're both great examples of responsible bully owners and I spoke to them about their approaches to training their dogs. Amber Vermedios is a dog trainer at Dancroft Canine where they specialize in working with bully breeds. And she's worked in doggy daycare and boarding for years. She's fostered countless rescue dogs of all types and has five dogs of her own one of whom is a beautiful bully named Quinn. I'd say that I'm a, I'm a little bit everywhere when it comes to training. I can, uh, you know, clicker train. I definitely see the value in clicker training. I definitely see the value in using food rewards or tug rewards. Um, but I also see the value 
inducing correction or, or punishment-based training, depending on the dog that's in front of me. You know, I'm, I, I'm open to everything. I do think that everything does boil down to the relationship that the person has or the handler has with their dog. Um, so you could call it relationship-based. Technically, it falls under the category of balance, but balance is such a wide category. I mean, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all. Um, you know, I think it's very much like people. Everyone learns a little bit differently. Everyone's been through a different history and needs a different approach. I absolutely believe in fitting the dog to specifically what it needs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach, you know, uh, a fearful Pomeranian or Chihuahua very differently than a fearful Bernese Mountain Dog simply because of size. I'm going to approach a dog that's really pushy um, very differently than a dog that's very fearful, right? So it's definitely a, uh, you know, look at what's in front of you and consider what they've been through and make a game plan based on, on that particular dog. I've seen firsthand the incredible work Amber's done with multiple rescue dogs with different behavioral challenges and special needs. She's the kind of person who will take the bite wrist dog that no one else will and completely turn their life around. I asked her to tell me about her dog, Quinn, and how she navigates things differently with her because she's a bully in a province with BSL. So uh, we have five dogs in total and Quinn is our only bully. And uh, when it comes to her, there are so many things we could do with her that we would love to do with her that we simply don't do with her simply because we can't take the chance. So um, not that I'm, I'm a big advocate of dog parks, but we don't even bother taking her to a dog park. It's not worth it. We don't even take her to places where there are off-leash dogs. We only go to, to private places. And if we see a dog, we hook her up and leave. Not because she's, you know, an, an ill-behaved dog or not because she's not dog-friendly, but because we know that if something ever did happen, like if she was the victim of an attack, that she would be the one blamed for it. So we simply don't allow her to interact with, with other dogs unless it's dogs that we know because we just can't take that chance with her. I also asked Amber if there were any common mistakes or misconceptions she's seen other people have when training their dogs. Yeah, I think the most overlooked thing that people tend to do is not really, everyone wants, at the end of the day, everyone wants this perfect dog. They want the dog to be able to go off leash around other dogs, around kids, around animals. Like they want, they want their dog to have full freedoms and to uh, just live a very easy and smooth life. And I get that, absolutely. Um, but a lot of them don't really uh, take into account um, you know, that you need to have a really good, strong communication with your dog um, to be able to do a lot of these things, um, which means a lot of work and a lot of buckling down and a lot of creating that relationship and creating that communication. So, um, you know, a lot of people just will take their dog and be like, let's go to the dog park and shove them in and not realize that maybe that dog park is not the best place for that specific dog um, for, for a variety of reasons. And a lot of people just want their dog to experience these things and think that they need these things in their life, like like dog parks or like doggy daycares. And don't get me wrong, obviously I love doggy daycares, um, but they're not for every dog. And so I think people need to take in consideration um, their personal dog that's in front of them and decide what the lifestyle is best suited for that specific dog and not go um, and just put them in dog parks because that's what dogs should do. I spoke about this a bit with Amanda as well, who works at a zoo with all types of animals and uses positive reinforcement training and other force-free methods to help the animals there live their best lives. She's also the proud owner of a blockheaded dog named Leilani, who's an amazing ambassador for her breed in an area that wonderfully does not have BSL laws in place. 
Amanda has a different training approach from Amber, and we spoke a bit about what training her dog Lonnie has looked like. So I work at Point Defiance Zoo in Tacoma, Washington, and that uh, shaped my training philosophy. So there we use positive reinforcement. Um, we never use punishment. We don't limit their food access based on what we want them to do. They're still offered their diet even if they don't want to participate in a specific behavior. And that really shaped what I do with my own pets. That's how I learned about training. And it's so effective that uh, I implement Lima with Lonnie, L-I-M-A, which is least invasive, minimally aversive training. And it's just, it's amazing um, because as bully breed owners, we're sometimes told that we need to have a heavier hand with our dog because there's some kind of vicious monster that needs a person to control them. And I always counter it with saying, hey, at work, if we can train a polar bear, which is an apex predator, to put their paw into a sleeve and allow us to do voluntary venipuncture, which is blood draw, um, then I can train my dog using the same methods. And it's worked very well for us. She responds really well. She loves training games. And um, we do a lot of what's called free shaping, where I basically have an end goal in mind, but I let her choose her path, so to speak, on how to get there. So if I want her to get in a box, then I'll reinforce her for orienting toward the box and I'll reinforce her for um, touching the box and then get, like putting a pot in the box and eventually, but she gets to choose that path and what speed she wants to go, which she loves training. So she's like, I'm going to do all these things to try to figure out what you want from me, <laughs> what's going to get me the cookie. Um, but it really has made a huge difference. Um, understanding that it's so much easier to reinforce the behavior that you want to see more of than to try and punish the behavior you don't want to see. So if Lonnie does something that I don't like, I never use. Um, what's called positive punishment, adding something to decrease the behavior. But I redirect her in a way that, that says, this is what I'd like to see from you instead. And animals across all species learn in the same way in that they're going to repeat behaviors they're reinforced for. And that goes for tigers and polar bears and sea turtles and dogs and cats and iguanas and all across the board, the learning theory is the same. Where it differs by individual dog is, for example, Lonnie loves free shaping. She loves trying to figure out what it is that is gonna get her the cookie. Whereas other dogs, maybe not so much. Um, I had a foster a couple of years ago and he was like, he would get frustrated when we would try to free shape because he's like, I just want you to tell me what I'm supposed to do. And so we adjusted our training style. We said, okay, maybe not free shaping for Daryl. Let's try hand targets and using these like teeny baby steps to work toward an end behavior. And so there's ways, because I'm sure you've heard that like people say, well, different dogs, different things work with different dogs or different 
dogs learn differently. And it's like, well, actually they learn the same, but how you implement it could look different. I also asked Amanda how she deals with unwanted behavior within this framework. Let me give you a really good example. Um, So Lonnie is a jumper. Like she gets so excited when you come home that she wants you to know that she wants to give you all the kisses. And so she will jump up to get attention. And so there's a few different things that that you can do to stop that behavior. Um, I mean, obviously you could push her down, but that actually reinforces her. So she that that's not going to work for us. And that's considered a punishment because you're um, adding something to decrease the behavior of her jumping up. Um, but here's a really good example. So she jumps up. Um, I was taught, hey, try to train her to go to a mat when somebody knocks on the door and then, you know, feed her treats and she can come and interact with the person when they're ready. Well, that didn't work because she's like, why would I stay on this stupid mat when I could get reinforcement from another person? So instead, what I trained her to do is tunnel through the legs of the person. Um, So they'll, you know, you ask her to go through your legs and then she can't simultaneously jump up on you while she's through your legs, but she still gets the pets. She still gets the attention from the person that she's, that's what she wants. And I like that, I like that method a lot because I'm not stifling what it is that she wants. So for Lonnie, even if she's getting treats on the mat, it's still somewhat punitive for her because she wants to be interacting with the person. So that's called differential reinforcement of an incompatible behavior. And that's just a fancy way of saying that she can't simultaneously jump up on me if she's tunneling between my legs, but she's still getting the attention from the person, which is what she wants, which is what she's finding reinforcing. I thought Amanda made some great points about positive reinforcement training. And I have to admit, I've always leaned towards that philosophy myself. My husband disagrees, however, and so we've ended up raising our dog with more of a balanced approach. I think in a lot of cases, the training approach is as much about the person as it is about the dog. I spoke with both guests about how bully breed dogs need more responsible owners, and you can hear how the conversations overlapped. I think there's definitely a higher responsibility that we responsible owners that have bully breed dogs take on, and we have to because again, if there's any problem, it's automatically going to be the blockhead's fault because of how they've been portrayed in the media and um, these kind of unfounded myths that float around. And I think people get these, you know, quote, like family friendly type dogs thinking they don't have to do any of the work. They don't have to train because, you know, their dogs just love everybody. Uh, which isn't true. Like training is something that you do with your dog for life. And so I think that's kind of where the situation gets sticky is that when, and and Lonnie's my first dog that I've owned on my own. That's not like my parents' dog or my family's dog. And I definitely feel the weight of responsibility. And to be honest, I probably will only ever adopt bully breeds now because they need responsible homes and I can provide that. But it's definitely, we have to put work into our dogs to show that they are like excellent family dogs and they're excellent members of the community. But not all of, like, 
like stop labeling pipples aren't good with kids or they are good with kids or they're good with cats or they're not good with cats and just look at the individual dog whether it's a pitbull or a golden retriever or a jack russell terrier or whatever it is like know that whatever dog you get you have to put the work in but also for us bully breed owners we know that there's a higher responsibility that we that we have now listen to what amber had to say if it comes to uh, the dogs that I've worked with in proactiveness, bully breed owners are always the most proactive uh, people that you can find. They're always one step ahead of the game. They bring their puppies in way before any issues actually arise because they know that they need to have them on the right foot, start in the right path right away. Um, and you're right, like a lot of people have no idea that their dog falls under BSL and they're like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, I can't have a pit bull, but I'm going to go out and get an American bully. And it's like, well, you're still a victim to to BSL, like you still fall under the category and they're absolutely dumbfounded as how their dog falls under the same category. I can remember so distinctly the first time I felt proud of my training with Gordo. It was a couple months in and we'd been working really hard on his leash pulling, which was a real hit or miss kind of problem. We were having a great day where my pocket full of treats was keeping him in a lovely loose leash heel and a woman with a puppy was walking towards us. See, buddy, that's how you're supposed to walk, like a good boy, she said. And I probably smiled at her through my mask. But the cool thing about this interaction was that I could swear I had said those exact same words to Gordo just a couple weeks before when we'd encountered a really well-behaved dog while he was being a bit of a pest. And I've also had some great conversations with people when I've been working on muzzle training Gordo. I was actually really surprised when I posted a photo on Instagram for Muzzle Monday a while back and multiple friends and family messaged me concerned about what Gordo had done wrong. I chose to muzzle train in large part because the language of the dola states that pit bulls in Ontario are always to be muzzled in public. Now, wonderfully, that's rarely enforced these days. And as I've said before, Gordo is not a pit bull, but there are so many good reasons to muzzle your dog that I felt it was prudent to get him accustomed to it and comfortable should we ever have an emergency where he needs one. And I wanna take a minute to encourage our listeners to reserve judgment when you see a muzzled dog. In the same way that people unfairly judge bully dogs for looking tough, people jump to conclusions about muzzled dogs far too often. A dog could be muzzled for so many great reasons, like because he's a scavenger who picks up and eats gross crap on walks or because he's reactive and it's a precaution for everyone's safety. A dog could be muzzled because he recently had surgery and is in pain and acting out because of it. The list goes on and on. It's not just dogs that bite that are muzzled and dogs that are a bite risk or reactive or dog selective and all of those things can still be great dogs. I see some advocates say that if people seeing their dogs in a muzzle makes them want to stay away, that sometimes that's exactly the desired effect. Give that dog space. I will say that one thing you can probably assume if you see a muzzled dog is that they have a responsible owner who's likely choosing to work with them in a way that is safest and best for everyone. So my actual first um, bully experience, if you will, was my brother had a, um, a pit bull boxer. Um, this was before BSL ever came into play. Uh, his name was Tyson um, and he was a lovely family dog. Very, very sweet boy. Um, but I very much remember, um, I must have been, gosh, I don't know, maybe in my, in my teens um, when BSL came into play and I remember putting a muzzle <laughs> on him thinking like, why does he suddenly need to be muzzled? Like he's 
he's the same dog he was, you know, two days before BSL went into play. And he didn't know, like, what the muzzle was for. He didn't understand why he suddenly had to wear this thing on his face. And it was, it was hard for him. And I remember after BSL came into play, I was walking him and it was a really hot day. And he was really struggling to get from, from point A to point B. We just needed to get to our house. It was like five minutes away, but he kept laying down. He was just overheating, overheating. And I was, I was really young, so I didn't know what to do. And I was just trying to flag down cars, like, help me, help me. I need to get my dog to my house. He's like overheating and I can't pick him up. He's too big. Like, I didn't know what to do. And no one would stop for us. It was, it was really sad. And I was like, is it because of his breed? Like, because, you know, most people would help out a person in need. But like, I'm like, why won't anyone stop for us while we're here? And then with Quinn on a daily on a daily basis, we're always super mindful. Uh, you know, we we have a cottage that's on the lake, and we have a lot of people who pass by with their dogs, and we're always just on top of her and making sure that she's out of the way because there's so many people that feel so uncomfortable with her that we always have to be aware of where she is and what she's doing because you know if if a little basset hound or a, a Bernese Mountain Dog walked up to someone, it wouldn't be a big deal, but. If she walks up to someone, you know, those people can get really upset and start screaming and causing a scene and it's not really fair to her. So when we have her out with us, we are just super hyper aware where she is and what she's doing, not because she's a bad dog, but because we don't want people um, feeling uncomfortable around her. It's so wild to me to think that overnight the government demanded a whole category of dogs be subjected to mandatory muzzling and just hasn't looked back for over 15 years. A lot of bully owners back then simply ended up not taking their dogs out anymore because of it. Can you imagine the strain it would have on your mental health to have to choose between breaking the law and risking losing your dog or suddenly not being able to exercise them properly and just never doing things again that you've done with them their whole life? These sorts of harmful and unjust restrictions have only added further to the fear-mongering and breed discrimination that bully breeds are subjected to across the world. Yeah, we've faced discrimination because of her blockheadedness more than once. Uh, There was one time when she was younger and I was walking her around our apartment area on leash and a car came and slowed down and they yelled out the window, that thing should be put down and threw a 7-Eleven cup at us. It was entirely unnecessary and um, they could have easily just driven by and not shared their opinion, but they decided to do that. Uh, We don't go to dog parks anymore, but uh, we did when she was younger and more than once we were asked to leave because they weren't comfortable with their dog playing with a pit bull. And this was a place where pit bulls were fine to be. It was just the other owner's preference that she's heard things about pit bulls and she doesn't want her dog interacting with one. And her dog was all about playing with Lonnie. (laughs) And so it was a little bit, um, I mean, it was very hurtful, like assess the individual dog and not look at her overall and make judgments. I don't want to end this episode on a sour note. And because I know you are all starting to get a pretty real picture of all the difficulties and responsibilities that come with owning a bully breed. So I wanted to take a minute to remind you of how awesome they are as well. 
and why we love them. I asked Amanda to share one of her favorite things about Lonnie with me. Um, so Leilani is not a huge barker. Uh, she will bark if there's another dog going by, but she's vocal in other ways. So <laughs> when it's dinner time, she will let us know by making the most ridiculous mooing sound. And um, she'll just stare at us and then moo. And it's so, it makes me laugh. It's it's like, I'll have to record it and send it to you because it's just so ridiculous. And don't worry, guys, we got the recording. Let's listen one more time. I don't know about you guys, but I love all the weird sounds dogs make around food and when they're having fun. Gordo makes this sort of chuffing sound when he's excited and oh, it's it's everything to me. <laughs> and I don't know if you noticed, but our last episode was completely devoid of any of my very snappy and professional dog crunch sound transitions. These ones. Now, I know I could listen to an album of dogs making sounds and never get bored, but what do you think? Did you miss it last week? Is the crunch of a carrot too powerful and I should use an apple instead? Do you prefer the more subtle sniff? Or a lick, perhaps? I'll tell you what, keep an eye on our Instagram this week for a post inviting all of your opinions on my sound mixing abilities and Gordo's sound making abilities. I promise we're very eager to listen to your input. Thanks for coming to the pity party. You can find show notes for this episode and lots of great links to our guests on our website, pityparty.blog. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at pityparty_pod. A big thank you to Amber and Amanda for being featured in this episode and the Ontario Coalition Against BSL for their support. All of the music in this episode is by Crowander and the show is written, edited and produced by me, Sydney Schapansky. If you want to join the party and have a story or question surrounding BSL, send an email or voice note to listeners at pityparty.blog. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss our next episode. Is this the most fun thing we've ever done?